At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom. I loved seeing in that video of our kids was I loved seeing all of them sitting there, if you saw the scene, with their Bible open on their lap, learning to engage God's Word. That's what we're going to do. So if you haven't found 1 Kings 17, I hope you do. Device, Bible, whatever it is, I'd love for you to have the text in front of you as we study through the story and what we're going to talk about this morning as we engage His Word together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably one of the most famous Christian martyrs of the 20th century. Bonhoeffer ministered. He was a pastor, theologian, um, and professor who ministered and lived in the 1920s and 30s in Germany. And when the rise of kind of Nazism was rising in Germany, uh, Bonhoeffer decided to take a different track and actually had committed much of his life to training and encouraging and building up the church to kind of stand in resistance and live against a culture that was increasingly compromising with uh, the Nazi ideals. And uh, ultimately, Bonhoeffer uh, would face the fate of martyrdom and would be executed um, for his resistance to Nazism, actually being part of a plot to take down Hitler. Um, And he's been one of those guys through the years that has often challenged uh, many Christians in terms of what it looks like to live out your faith in a hostile culture. What most people don't know is that um, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity at one point in his life to actually escape out of Germany and to avoid the war and what was happening there completely. In 1939, he actually came to Union Theological Seminary in New York to begin uh, teaching as a professor there. But after about two weeks of teaching, Bonhoeffer couldn't take it anymore. He felt a stirring in his soul that something wasn't right, and he made the decision at that point to return back to his native Germany and to continue his work with the church there. When he was making that decision, he actually wrote a letter to a friend noting this. He said, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. 
He would ultimately return. He would work training in church. Ultimately, he would face incredible hostility, having his writings um, and even his teaching banned. He would go underground, starting an underground seminary to train pastors in the confessing church. And when much of the church was compromising, Bonhoeffer was training men the other way. In fact, his, one of his most famous works, Life Together, was written out of his time in training uh, pastors in that seminary. And I think one of the reasons Bonhoeffer has had such an impact and stands as a pretty incredible, fascinating figure in Christian history is that he was a man who was willing not to compromise in light of a cultural tide that called for it. Where much of the church synchristically adopted Nazi ideals alongside Christianity, Bonhoeffer instead challenged those ideas, recognizing that discipleship is costly, that faith is not easy, that grace is not cheap, and that at times we must stand against the pulse of the culture that calls us to compromise our faith in Christ. For a while now, I think if you've been paying attention there's been much of that call for compromise within our own culture. In recent decades, with the rise of secularism and the emphasis on pluralism that has come within our culture, there has been a pressure for many of those who follow Christ to hear the call of synchristically blending a secular culture with the reality of our Christian faith. Now, I'm not trying to say that our modern American culture is equivalent with Nazi Germany. Don't hear me draw that correlation. But I do think we exist more than ever in a culture that calls for compromise. Whether that's the compromise of our morals, whether that's social compromise, whether that's political compromise. And I think one of the things that many of us wrestle with is what does a life of faith look like in a culture that seems to be increasingly pluralistic, increasingly synchristic, and calling us to compromise? Right? Be Christians. Keep your heads down and your mouths shut. That's much of the mentality that comes in the culture that we exist today. And so how do we live a life of faith in that reality? Well, the good news is that I don't think this is the first time that people of God have faced those sort of questions. This morning, we're kicking off a series looking at the life of one of the premier prophets in the history of the nation of Israel, a man named Elijah. And Elijah speaks and ministers to Israel during a major period in their history where they were facing the pressures of pluralism and syncretism. And his story was likely recorded as a way to encourage Israel even when they were in exile and facing those same challenges in Babylon and Assyria. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to dig into the story of this man, Elijah. And we're going to see how we can be men and women of faith despite the pressures that we so often experience within the culture around us. So this morning, we're just going to kind of jump into his story. His story begins in 1 Kings 17. We're going to just kind of jump in and unpack a couple things together. But let me kind of set a little bit of the context. So First and Second Kings, it originally was one book, and it records the history of the nation of Israel, essentially from the reign of Solomon, who was David's son, David being one of the premier kings of Israel, his son Solomon, from his reign through Israel's exile into Babylon and Assyria. The first 11 chapters of 1 Kings describe Solomon's reign over Israel, and Solomon's reign starts good, but it ends bad. 
So he starts with wisdom, but he ends kind of synchristically bringing in idolatry through his many wives into Israel, who begin to lessen in their worship of Yahweh. In chapter 12, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over, and it goes from bad to worse. In fact, under Rehoboam's leadership, the nation of Israel splits into two nations. Rehoboam continues to lead the portion of Israel that would become Judah with its capital of Jerusalem, while the servant Jeroboam lives a revolt and forms another nation, the nation of Israel, with its capital in Samaria. From there, there's a series of kings that lead both Judah and Israel. And usually the, the kings give the verdict on the kings of whether they followed the ways of God or whether they didn't. In the nation of Israel, no kings follow the ways of the Lord. And in fact, in chapter 16, we're actually right before Elijah shows up on the scene, we're introduced to the king who is reigning over Israel when Elijah steps into his ministry. And this guy's an interesting dude. Look at me actually at just a few verses before 17 and 1629, how it describes him. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, what you need to understand is the guys who came before him were not good guys. It wasn't like, oh, they were good and he brought it down. It was like they were bad and he took it worse. It says he was even worse than all the kings that were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings who were before him. In his days of Hiel of Bethel built Jericho, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Joshua by the son of Nun. You're like, okay, what's going on here? Well, essentially, they liken Ahab is worse than all the other kings. Why? Why is he worse? Well, he gives you several reasons. One, he continues in the sin of Jeroboam. The sin of Jeroboam was when the nation split, Jeroboam established a new capital for Israel in Samaria. But one of the things he did in establishing this new capital is he actually built two golden calves there as idols in worship for Yahweh. If in the back of your head you're thinking, wait, golden calves sound familiar. Isn't that what Israel did back in the desert? That's exactly the point. Jeroboam recapitulates the idolatry of Israel and brings it back at the center of its capital that he establishes. Ahab continues in that vein, but Ahab actually makes it worse. He goes and marries this woman Jezebel, who's a bad news in the scene. Jezebel is the daughter of the king of Tyre, which is the capital of the Sidonians, which is just north of Israel. And one of their chief gods that they worship is a god called Baal. And Baal was seen as the god of the storm. He was the god of fertility. He was the one who brought rain in the season to water the land. And Jezebel worships Baal. And so when Ahab marries her, what he does is he doesn't say, hey, Jezebel, we worship Yahweh here, not this god that you have. He actually says, no, why don't we have 
God, or why don't we have our people also worship Baal here? So he builds an altar and a temple to Baal, this false god, alongside the worship of the God in Israel. You think, well, that's pretty bad. It even gets worse. He also builds an Asherah. And most people, what is an Asherah? An Asherah was seen in Sidonian culture as the female consort or the female companion of their chief god. And so he essentially built another altar saying, oh yeah, our god Yahweh, he's also got this female side piece that kind of helps him out and we're going to worship her as well. So bad news all around. If you think, how does it get worse than that? Well, when Israel was coming into the promised land, Jericho was one of the main cities that opposed their entrance. And if you remember, God called Joshua to walk around the walls seven times. They fell. You might remember that story from Sunday school, but Joshua offered a curse on Jericho, which said, if anyone rebuilds these walls, it's going to be at the cost of his son. Ahab decides, I'm going to rebuild Jericho and is willing to actually sacrifice two of his children in order to do it. So you see, not only has he himself turned from Yahweh, he's actually led the nation of Israel against worship of God and synchronistically brought in other gods and saying, well, we'll worship all these gods. We'll build temples. We'll worship them. What they say, what we say, we'll just all follow that together. So it's in this context that Elijah steps on the scene. And look what happens in 1 Kings 17, what happens here. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, remember when you see in your Bibles, L-O-R-D in capital letters, the translators are signifying that that's God's covenant name, Yahweh, Yohei-Vod-Hei. So as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah steps on the scene in the midst of a culture that's highly synchristic, that's turned from the way of God, and he essentially confronts it from the beginning. Now you say, who is Elijah? Well, we don't know much about him. We know two things from the text. One, he's from Tishbe, which most scholars are not entirely sure, but what we recognize is likely from a region that's on the other side of the Jordan, which means it's kind of away from the main areas of the nation of Israel. So this is a guy from nowhere. He shows up, and his name is actually significantly important. His name means Yahweh is my God. And so he stands to say God is actually the one to be followed. And he directly confronts Ahab and his worship of Baal and the synchristic reality of their culture. He actually confronts them by bringing the truth of God's word to bear on Israel. You see, God had made a promise long before that if Israel was going to turn their back on worshiping him, that he would actually bring a drought to bear to remind them of their sin. In fact, if you turn on your Bibles back to Deuteronomy 11, or I'll put it on the screen, you can just follow it there. You can hear God's promise. He writes to his people and says, Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So God had made this promise. Elijah recognizes the reality of where the culture is and what the promise of God had said. And so he brings God's word to Ahab to essentially say, you've gone too far and God's going to shut down 
the rain. And it's not going to rain, and you're not going to grow crops, and you're not going to have food because you've turned from God. But even as he brings this word, he's actually challenging Baal head on. And it's what sets up the context, really, for the rest of Elijah's story in many ways. Remember, Baal is the god of fertility and rain. He's the one who they would pray to and seek every year after the drought season that the rain would come and water the crops. And so when Elijah steps on the scene and says, hey, it's not going to rain anymore, this is a direct confrontation to Baal's perceived power within the culture. And he's essentially saying God is greater than him, and God is going to shut this down because of your false worship. You see, God had always established his people from the very beginning to the day to be a prophetic community, to be the sort of community in the midst of a world that had turned its back on God to show God's way and call people back to walking the way of the Lord. But the problem in Israel is that the people of God had actually just become like the world and turned their back on God as well. Elijah then steps in as the prophetic voice to call Israel back and say, you have forgotten God's word. You need to be reminded of who God is and what it looks like to follow him. But the problem is, this brings up a series of challenges. And Elijah essentially becomes not only a prophetic voice, but a prophetic life in the midst of the culture to display what does it look like to have faith in God in the midst of a culture of compromise. He faces challenge, but then in that also calls us to ask the question, how do we live as people of faith in a culture of compromise? Look how the story continues, and you'll begin to see how this unfolds. Verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is the east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is the east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So Elijah comes, he confronts Ahab, more importantly, confronting Baal, and then God's word comes to Elijah and says, okay, I want you to leave here, and I want you to go to this land and this brook, Kareth. And it notes that it's east of the Jordan, which in Israel geography is the wilderness. So catch this just for a second. Essentially, Elijah says there's going to be no rain, which means no crops, no food. God shows up to Elijah and says, I want you to go where there's less food. Like, I don't know if you know this, but the wilderness is not the prime spot for the food chain. That's not where the bulk of supplies come. And God essentially says, I want you to go into this wilderness. You're going to find this brook. I want you to hunker down there, and I'm actually going to provide for you through these ravens. Which is a strange thing because ravens were seen as unclean animals in the Old Testament. But God is essentially trying to display in Elijah's life, listen, trust me, I've got you, go to this place and I'll provide for you. So it's a strange command, but note how Elijah responds. He does it. God says go, and it says in verse 5, he went and did according to the word of the Lord. 
He obeys unconditionally. And what happens? God provides for him. These ravens come, they bring him food in the morning, they bring him food in the evening. And so Elijah goes into the wilderness and finds God's provision there. Now again, if you're a good Jew, it might trigger your brain and you go, this sounds familiar. Wasn't there some other time where God's people were in the wilderness and God was providing for him? Wasn't wasn't there something, the the manna and there's something back there. Yes, that's exactly the point. What God is displaying through Elijah's life is, as the way I provided for you before, I can provide for you again. So why have you forgotten me? Why have you been so willing to worship another God when I'm the God of provision? But in case you didn't catch the lesson there, the story amplifies in what God calls Elijah to do next. So the brook dries up, right? There's no rain, so eventually the water runs out. Brook dries up. And so God comes to Elijah again. And in verse 8, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zaharaphath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zaharaphath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. So again, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. But now it steps the game up a little bit. Because God calls Elijah not to go into the wilderness, but actually to go into the very heart of where Baal worship took place. He calls him to go into Sidon, the very homeland of Jezebel, where Baal would have been worshipped. Now, they were experiencing the drought along with Israel. And God says, you're going to go there, you're going to find this widow, and I'm going to provide for you. Because I'm a God that can't just provide for you in the wilderness, I can even provide for you in enemy territory. I can take you into the worst places and still provide for you there. So just when you think you should trust Baal, look what I can do. And again, Elijah responds in obedience. He goes to this place. He finds this widow. He asks her for a drink. But look what happens in verse 11. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So he says, bring me some food. And she's like, listen, I've got, no, I've got like one meal left, literally my last meal. But look what he says in verse 12. Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So while Elijah was challenged with the word of God, now this foreign widow, she's not an Israelite, she's in Sidon, is now challenged, will she trust God's provision or not? Remember, she's on her last meal. This is it. It's like, I'm eating one meal, I'm out, I'm done. I hope it's a good one. I don't know if it's steak, what it is. Sounds like it's just bread. That stinks. But whatever it is, that's her last meal. That's it. And Elijah comes and says, hey, give that to me. And if you give it to me, God will provide. Now, I don't know, but that's a pretty significant act of faith to give your last meal before you die to someone else. So the question is, who's going to be the provider here? And what does she do? She obeys. Look at verse 
15, and she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So this woman shows incredible faith in the word of God and in Elijah trusting and giving him the food, and God then provides for her. She becomes a witness to faith. In fact, Jesus uses this story in his own ministry to rebuke Israel to say this foreign woman is an example of faith much more than the very people of God. But throughout this passage, the question is raised to the reader, who will you trust for your provision? Israel's in a place of compromise. Yeah, Israel has brought itself to a point where it says, well, God is a provider, yes, but Baal is also a provider. So, so we'll just worship both, right? We'll, we'll worship Yahweh, we'll sacrifice to him, but we're also going to go and take some to Baal because maybe he has something to do with this whole rain situation, and we'll just kind of blend these together. But the problem is when God's people begin to trust other things alongside of him, they forsake the prophetic reality that God has called them to and actually lack trust in him altogether because God reminds his people over and over again, I am your provider. I am the one who provides for you. And so Israel had gotten to a place where it no longer trusted Yahweh for its provision. But here the question is raised as Elijah displays faith and is provided for, who will you trust? Will you trust Yahweh or will you continue to trust your idols? Because you cannot trust both. Jesus said it as plain as day in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. You cannot bow your knee to God and claim him as your place of faith for provision and worship the idols that drive and claim to be the other ones that provide for your provision. So which one will you trust and which one will you follow? I think this passage is a reminder that one of the biggest places we can be tempted to compromise our faith is when it comes to the impact it will have on us economically. This is not just true in our culture. This is true across history and across the world, that it is very easy for us to compromise the truth of God's kingdom when it impacts our livelihood. We're all of us, myself included, I'm not excluded from this, are tempted to trust in something else besides God's, beside God for our provision. That's true in our culture constantly. It's why we overwork, lack generosity, put faith in our portfolio and our investments, it's why we have the mentality that I have to be self-provided for. So if I have a need, I can't even let other people know about it. i got to find some way to take care of it myself because I'm self-dependent. Our idol isn't Baal, it's ourselves. And so we're easy and prone to trust ourselves or place our dependence on us instead of the way of God and trusting his provision. It's why we compromise justice and righteousness in our culture in the name of prophets it's why we attach our identity, our value, our security, our purpose to money and money making. What was your income this year? So many of us feel that our identity is attached to that. 
But what God reminds us of and what this passage is, you can't have it both ways. You cannot worship Baal and Yahweh. You cannot trust God for your provision and be self-generated and focused. You can't serve two masters. That's why what Jesus taught his followers to do was to release the anxiety of our provision and focus our priority on the kingdom of God. In his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus' promises, seek God, his kingdom, his ways. Don't compromise. God will provide. He is a provider. He will provide for your needs. Not your wants, your needs. That's why David said, I've never seen the righteous go hungry. God has a miraculous way of providing time and time again. When I heard the story of the widow, I couldn't help but thinking back to a story I encountered several years ago from a, a guy, a pastor I know in India when I was traveling over there and doing some teaching and training. We were sitting one night talking, and he was sharing about how in, uh, in a culture that is very hostile to Christianity, he's seen God provide time and time again. And uh, he, he shared the story how one night they were, uh, there was a group of them, a, a few guys who were ministering in a city, and they had really, they'd come to the point where they had run out of funds completely. I mean, they were already poor to begin with, but they had no money and they had no food and evening came and they were unsure of how they were even going to eat that night. And he told the story how they were gathered in this room uh, in this city and they were just praying, God, would you provide some food? Would you provide some food just so we can eat and make it to the next day? And he said, while they were praying in this place, suddenly two pigeons flew into the window and just landed in the room which they were slightly startled by, but then were even more startled when the pigeons didn't move at all. And they recognized, this is provision. And so they took it, and they ate it. Because pigeon's actually a pretty normal thing around the rest of the world. I've had it. It's not too bad. Tastes like chicken. You should try it. The brain is actually a delicacy, but that's another story for another time, right? But it was just a reminder. God can show up and provide. He, he is a provider, Sometimes he provides through the community. Sometimes he provides in miraculous ways. But he is committed to providing for us. And when we walk committed to his ways, we testify to his reality as a provider. So what does faith look like in a culture of compromise? Does it look like Ahab and Israel worshiping and bowing to Baal alongside? Does it look like worshiping mammon and God? Finding our security and identity in something less than him? No, it looks like Elijah and the widow. And what do they show us? That faith looks like unconditional obedience to God's word. It's a willingness to follow what he says and trust him to provide despite the cultural pressures. God is sovereign over the affairs of the earth and he provides for his people. You do not have to compromise justice and righteousness you do not have to compromise the way of Christ in order to be provided for. The testimony of the church across the ages is God is a provider. The question is, will we unconditionally obey his word and follow what he says? Or will we settle for something less, an idol that can never provide what he can provide? But the story doesn't stop there. 
Because even though the widow obeys, she kind of suddenly faces a little bit of a left turn that, again, forces us to ask the question of what faith looks like in the midst of this culture of compromise. Look at verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid on him, laid him on his own bed. So the woman's experiencing this provision of God. Right? The jar's not running empty. She's got the flour, the oil. They're eating. But then suddenly something comes out of nowhere. I don't know if you've ever been in this place. You and the Lord, you're like, we're good. We're rocking. And then all of a sudden the right hook comes. That's what comes to her. Suddenly her son falls ill and she dies. And she immediately begins to interpret this reality through her cultural lens. She becomes confused and upset. She says, is this why you come here, Elijah? To raise up my sins in order to cause my son's death? You see, this was their cultural expectation, that the gods essentially operated in a way that if you did what was right and you made them happy, you got blessing. If you did what was wrong and didn't, you got judgment. And so if her son died, then it must be due to something that she did wrong. It must be due to her own failure to live up to the gods expectation. And even by her question, I think it naturally raises the question here in the reality of the story, Yahweh, are you just like all the other gods? If I don't get it right, here comes judgment. You just repay me. Better live right or God's just up there ready to strike you. And Elijah, what's interesting, essentially asked the same question. Look at his response. So he takes his kid up to his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Now what's interesting, what you can't see as readily in the English, is that the phrase that Elijah uses in the Hebrew is the exact phrase that the woman used before. When she says to cause the death of my son, and he says, by killing her son, that's the exact same phrase. So he's repeating her question. She comes to him and says, hey, is this why you showed up? To bring my sin to bear, and now my son has to die? And Elijah turns to God and says, hey, what's going on here? Like, there's, a, there's the question. What are you going to do? Are you just like, every, like, God, I don't understand. I don't know if you've ever been in that place in your faith. We're just looking at God going like, what are you doing here? Because this doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make sense to her, and it doesn't make sense to me either. So are you just like everything else? Is this how things work? But notice how God responds. So Elijah petitions to God. Verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come in to him again. Now catch verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came in to him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And she said, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. 
So the question is, Yahweh, are you just like Baal? Are you just like every other God? And the text reminds us, no, no. Why? Because this God hears. He's not deaf or dead. He's not turned his back somewhere else with no power over life itself. This God is very much alive, listening, responding to the petition of his people. And he restores life to the child, displaying his power over life. So much so that the woman sees the work of God in the reality of her child and testifies to the truth of who Yahweh is and who Elijah is as her prophet, or as his prophet. She again becomes an example of faith, responding to the work of God by trusting in God. And the question is naturally raised by the story. Who will you trust with your life? Not just your provision, but your life, the very essence of who you are. Will you trust your dead, mute idols that have no power? Baal can't even bring rain in this season, let alone life to a dead child. Or will you trust the true and living God who hears and responds to the cry of his people? You see, the reality is all false idols, all competing claims make a claim towards bringing life and eternal life. Baal claimed it, that he was the one that brought life and fertility to the land. Hitler said the Third Reich would reign for a thousand years. Rome was supposedly called the eternal city that brought peace to the entire world. Every major religion claims to be a path to eternal life, but the hard part is they all succumb to the same power, death. They all die and seem to have no power over death itself. Paul referred to death as the last great enemy. And so what makes God different than the other gods and other claims is that our God is a God over death who can provide life. Don't miss the imagery here. It's important. It's a foreshadowing. Elijah lays on the boy. He assumes the position of death in order to request that he would bring life. But there would be another one who would come greater than Elijah, who wouldn't just assume the position of death, but would assume death itself by dying on the cross for the sins of the world. But the truth of the gospel is that one who is greater than Elijah didn't stay dead. In fact, three days later, he walked out of the tomb to announce that he has the key uh, and hold the power over death in Hades, that he is the risen and true king. You want to know what God is alive? You want to know what God has power over death? It's not Baal. It's not the claims of our culture. Look to the God who is alive. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And what does it look like to live in light of that reality? It looks like to put your complete dependence on him. That's what we talk about, faith in Christ. It's trusting Christ as the source of your life. It's trusting Christ as the source of the hope that one day he will raise you as he has been raised and bring you into God's eternal new creation. It's to live your life making him the priority and the focus. It's to trust him completely. You see, we're tempted in a culture of plurality and syncretism to compromise. Sure, trust in Christ, but trust also in this. Trust in yourself, your own self-actualization. 
The culture and the powers around us feel strong. And when we face suffering and adversity, we can be tempted to give up, to give in, to trust in lesser things. But what this story reminds us of and what I think God invites us to do time and again when we're faced with the challenge of of cultural compromise is to look with faith and eyes at that empty tomb where the greater prophet than Elijah was laid and we hear the Lord say, see, my son lives. He is not dead. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is alive. And to be a people of faith is to stake our trust in the risen king and follow him with radical abandon no matter what the culture says. Being willing to face the cost because he's worth everything. He is the resurrected one. So trust him. So what does a life of faith look like in a culture of plurality and syncretism? It's one that trusts God completely for life and takes him at his word. That is willing to walk the path of trust and obedience no matter the cost because we follow a risen king. And so Elijah calls us again back to that place of faith. It reminds us and asks us, what do you trust? Have you been trusting in something less than the God who is alive Have you been putting your hope in things that cannot offer you the life and the satisfaction that your heart desires? Turn from those things. Don't worship Baal. Don't worship yourself. Don't worship the ideals of our culture. Worship the true and living God as revealed most magnificently in his son, Jesus Christ. Put your faith there and follow him and watch God provide for you. Watch him bring you the life that only he can bring, one that starts now and ends in eternity with him where it actually never truly ends. The beginning of Elijah is simply an invitation for all of us back to a life of faith and trust in Christ. And we're gonna have the opportunity to proclaim that together in a moment through communion. But before we do that, let me pray for you. God, we're thankful this morning that you're a God that is alive that you are not dead and you invite us again to come back to that place in the reality of the resurrection to set our faith and our hope in Jesus. God, we recognize our hearts are idle factories. We are so prone to put our trust in things far less than you, to worship things that are created instead of worshiping our creator. God, we're sorry, I'm sorry, even for the ways this week that I failed to trust you in the way that you have called me to and called us to. We're thankful this morning for the truth of Jesus, that he died for our sins of idolatry, that we do not have to experience your judgment and your curse because he took that judgment and that curse for us, that we don't have to experience the rejection of drought, but we get the blessing of the eternal mercy of God reigning over us forever and ever because of what Jesus has done. So this morning, God, we want to give our hearts to you. We want to set our hearts on you. I pray you would help us do that. I pray for every person in this room who's listening online. Would you bring us back to that place of faith and help us once again to take the step of simply putting our trust, our dependence on you. Maybe for some of us morning, this morning, Lord, that's for the very first time power salvation, I pray by your spirit. 
For some of us, it might be coming back to a place we have forgotten or turned from. Or maybe for us, it's just that recommitment again to say, Christ is worth everything I follow him. I don't know where everyone's at, God, but I know your spirit can work to bring us to that place of trusting you. So I pray you would do that. That even as we sing this song, just speaking the name of Jesus, that you would elevate faith within our and that you would remind us of what he's done for us even as we celebrate your supper together. So we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.